Together with M&M's, iHeartRadio is celebrating International Women's Day by turning the spotlight on groundbreaking women who are flipping the status quo. This year, during See Her, Hear Her, celebrating women who make music and culture, we'll hear from inspirational women in the music industry who aren't afraid to shatter norms. One dollar from every pack of flipping the status quo M&M's sold, totaling $500,000, is going towards supporting female creators. Tune in to iHeartRadio, YouTube, and Facebook today at 8 p.m. Sponsored by M&M's. Just again, want to thank Goodwalk Coffee, awesome supporters of mine, and couldn't do it without them. So goodwalkcoffee.com, use the promo code FIREPIT and get 20% off anything. If you get a subscription to the Monday Q Grind, you get a free towel. Thank them again for their support. Goodwalkcoffee.com, promo code FIREPIT. Welcome back to The Grind. I just wanted to re-release this podcast with Craig Perks. It's probably the favorite podcast that I've done. Uh, Craig was just so honest and insightful about his career. And on the week of the players, I think it was really important that we revisit it. He talks about that win. It's been 20 years since he won. One of the more unlikely wins in players history, if not the most. And he talks About that day, he talks about the end of his career, and he's just totally and, I mean, completely honest about the struggles that happened at the end, how he looks back on his career, um, what that win means to him, um, what the end of his career means, and how, how it was to walk away. So he's just an awesome dude, and he's been great to me. So I thought it was important that we uh, re release it. So Without further ado, here is Craig Perks. Super excited about this guest. Really honored to have him here. 2002 Players Champion, uh, Craig Perks. Craig, thanks for joining us. Ryan, it's my pleasure. Um, I've been a fan for a long time, and I'm uh, thrilled to, to get to join any given Monday. Thanks very much. So let's kind of start uh, back at the beginning. I mean, first I want to hear... I mean, I've done a lot of research, kind of, I mean, I knew about your career and those kind of things, but let's start with your table tennis career that I heard was was pretty good as a kid. <laughs> well, I, I did notice you have dug pretty deep, but uh, to go back to my <laughs> table tennis career, um, it, it started very early, Ryan, it really did. It started back in my garage Um really in the mid-1970s with my dad. My dad was my coach. Uh, we used to play every single night. Um, I, I just enjoyed being out there with him. He was a sportsman throughout his career, but he was sort of derailed, accomplishing anything just from injuries, and he had poor hips and so on and so forth. But I just, I really just enjoyed the time with him. Um, as I mentioned, we we played every single night. We would compete together. He was very good. Um, and I think that sort of instilled some of the work ethic, uh, desire, sort of the competitive nature that I had that I, I used all the way through my professional golf career. I, the thing that I do remember vividly is that uh, early on, he, he built a, a table tennis bat. Now, they're not a paddle. They're a bat. Right. 
right. for me that, that was basically the same size as a table tennis ball. And I used to practice with that. So my obviously it really helped my hand-eye coordination. Yeah. And I ended up being a uh, New Zealand champion in uh, under under 11 and under 12. So that was 1979 and 1980. But more than anything, it was just being with my dad. We'd get, as I said, we'd go out there every single night. We would travel, you know, drive to re- local events and regional events and some national events throughout New Zealand. And um, I just cherish those memories. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's obviously cool that, I mean, you had that with your dad. Do you still play, Craig? <laughs> I I don't. I know my wife gave me a table tennis or bought me a table tennis table for my 40th birthday, and I never used it. It sat in the garage <laughs> just because there was really not not very many people to play with. Um, yeah. So she gave that away to to some neighbors who had some young kids. I I play very very infrequently. Um, I just remember when I when I played with my dad, and like I said, I was, you know, nine, ten, and eleven. Yeah, right. I could barely, barely see over the table, and now you sort of tower over that table. And I still yeah. have the coordination and the skills. We we play a little bit. People go to pool halls. Sometimes we've gone to some table tennis halls and played, and sort of rekindled some of that competitive spirit and so on and so forth. But Obviously, not very much in the last couple of decades. So, your your mom—I mean, was your dad a golfer? I know your mom was a, a huge part of your golf career, and she was a big golfer. Did your dad play golf, or how did I guess how did your start in golf become? Well, I started with uh, we all. I had I have three, well, two elder brothers, so five of us, and we all played golf. And uh, you know, one of the fondest memories. As a family, we'd go out in the evenings during the summer and certainly on Sunday afternoons and go play 18 holes together. Uh, Dad was good. Dad actually could break 80. Um, Mum was a lefty. The other, my other two elder brothers could play. Uh, they liked to play, but obviously they didn't have the desire that, that I had. But I started really with my dad who went out and played nine holes three or four times a morning um, for exercise for his hips and so on and so forth. So I went out with him. He couldn't bend down to put the ball on the tee or get the ball out of the hole. So school for me started uh, when I was, uh, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 at 9, 9.30 in the morning. So we'd go out at 6 in the morning and I'd pull the, the pull card or the trundler, as we used to call them, and caddy for him and put the ball on the the tee and get the ball out of the hole. And after about six or eight months, he said, uh, why don't you give it a show? And I'm like, I really wasn't interested. I was more sort of uh, enjoying using the trundlet. There was a lot of do on the ground. So just sort of doing wheelie, wheelies in the ground and tearing up <laughs> seeing the do fly and that sort of thing as a young 10-year-old would like to do. And then I took a couple of swings and uh, probably within a couple of months got the bug. So I would go out and play quite regularly with my dad before school. And that's really the the first memories I have of playing golf. And when in that process, Craig, do you, do you realize that you're better than other kids or, you know, that you have some sort of talent, you know, that other kids might not have? Well, um, I would say probably 
early 1980s, um, probably 1980, 81. I know Grant Waite, who uh, is from my hometown in New Zealand, Palmerston North. Uh, we grew up together, obviously. He and I played college golf at Oklahoma. He won on the PGA Tour, the old Kemper. Um, he, we, he sort of an, inspired me as a young kid. You know, he would... I would tag along with him. So it was early 80s. Uh, we had a group of young juniors that would go out there and play in New Zealand at, a, at our home course, Grant being one of those guys. And for me, um, I, you know, I enjoyed table tennis. I, I played cricket. I played rugby. Uh, I swam as a, as a young kid. Uh, I just liked the, the peace and the quiet and the, um, not aloneness, but just going out there and, and competing, just being by yourself and going out there and you were the only one to blame and you were the one that got the credit if you performed well. So it was, it was probably very early in the, in the 80s when I just, uh, I had a paper route. So I'd deliver papers after school and then pretty much at the end of the paper route finished at the entrance to the golf course. So I'd just go out there and hit balls and, and play nine holes or whatever it may be. And I was doing that five or six times a week. I've read, Craig, that sometimes you did not go to school. <laughs> According to the article, often wrote your own notes about skipping school and went, and went to play uh, golf. Is, is there any truth to that, to, to that story? Have you been talking to my mother? Um, <laughs> there was a, Ryan, there was an option. Um, I rode to school. This is, um, we would call it, uh, I guess you'd call it high, well, pre, pre high school over here. Um, but when I was about 13, uh, so that was form three, form four, form five, form six. So basically 13 to 16, I would ride my bike to school and I got to, I came to a stop sign, a four way stop. And if I went right, I had to ride my bike another seven or eight, maybe 10 miles to the to the high school. If I went left, it was only about two miles to the golf course. So many times I took a left. Uh, <laughs> I, I would forge my mother's um, signature to, to excuse my absence. And then after after a while, when I when I got on the, the boys high golf team and was the best player on the team as the as a 13 year old, which was the youngest grade on that, on that high school team, uh, the, the professors and the teachers sort of understood that my passion wasn't really in the classroom. So yes, that's a hundred percent true. I always thought, why would I want to ride my bike 25 minutes into the wind uphill <laughs> right, right, where right. I could turn left and go straight downwind downhill to the golf course and be hitting balls yeah. in, in 10 or 15 minutes. So a hundred percent correct. Uh, from what I read, it got a little dodgy on Thursdays because that was when your mother played golf, yeah. <laughs> and it was a little, it was a little bit. Uh, you had to be a little more careful about where you teed, what time you teed it up. Well, I, I was extremely aware of Ladies' Day, uh, and there were there was a sort of a hidden range. The golf course where I played and practiced was a, a place called Hokufitu. It's now Manawatu Golf Club, but there was. They had the main range, which was just wide open next to the ninth fairway on one side and 18th fairway. And that really wasn't conducive to a 
young schoolboy in his uniform hitting balls at 10 o'clock <laughs> in the morning. So I would right. go to a, it was, it was a sort of a back lot range that had a turf nursery in the very archaic sense of the word. Uh, and I would go there in the trees and just hit shots. And then I could sort of tell the 15th hole was a par five up along the riverbank. And it was a high point in the golf course. And I could, I could tell and I knew basically when my mother was going to be at that point. So then I, after I would be practicing hitting balls for a couple of hours, uh, when I saw her reach the 15th green, I would hide in amongst the trees and amongst the most dense part of the forest and wait for her to get by the 16th, 17th, 18th hole, and then I'd go along my merry way, practicing and playing and hitting balls. It was, it was a really, it was a carefree time. You know, yeah, I had to worry about my mother. She really never knew. And it, it, it amazed me to this, even to this day, but really when I turned pro, went to the States on a golf scholarship, it, it still really wasn't until that point that this story sort of, came out to the public that uh, she had no idea. So I thought I did a very good job of, uh, yeah. of um, sort of excluding or keeping myself very secretive while I was not uh, where I needed to be. Yeah, but I mean, it all worked out in the end. So uh, yeah, yeah, it was all worth it, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, when in this process, I mean, was coming to the States always the plan if you got to be good enough? When when did that become an option, I guess? Well, Oklahoma, uh, Grant Waite went off to Oklahoma. Actually, pre-Grant Waite, two New Zealanders, the two best New Zealand uh, players in the country, and they were both under the age of 18 or 19 or even 20, Phil Aiken and Greg Turner, both went off to play collegiate golf at the University of Oklahoma. Then Grant went on over to Oklahoma and... I had the desire to go. I had no idea what the collegiate system was about. I had no idea the difference between Oklahoma, Arkansas, Arizona, or Florida. It ended up that David Yates was the coach at that time, and he uh, decided to bring the Oklahoma golf team on a tour of New Zealand. Mm -hmm. that, at that point, and I believe that was in 19, either late 1983 or early 1984, um, they came over and did a tour and they came to my home club. And I, they, these kids or these guys or these players looked like they were having so much fun. They're all decked out in their OU gear and all carrying an OU golf bag and they were having the time of their life. And at that point, uh, that, that was the path that I wanted to take. Um, so I decided I left, I'd left school at that time. I was working in a, fruit market, a produce market. I was up at three in the morning, work until two in the afternoon, four days a week, and was playing golf the rest of the time, sort of funding my own uh, golf career at that time, the age of 16. Um, and that's, that's what I was most desirous of, to go to, to, go to America and to make the, the Oklahoma golf team. Uh, I had been in contact with David Yates, the coach, at that time, I was the best player in New Zealand. You know, I had I'd won uh, the the North Island boys. I'd won the New Zealand uh, championship. I'd been on the New Zealand junior team. I'd won pretty much everything that I could possibly do, and that was in 1984 and 1985. I was part of the New Zealand coaching schools that Alex Mercer, a really a revered and famed coach from Australia would come over and teach us. Um, 
so my name was out there sort of throughout Australasia and once uh, I was at the point where I was um, worthy of earning a scholarship to an American college I reached out to Oklahoma and it was sort of a foregone conclusion because um, David Yates had had so much success with kids coming from New Zealand you know Grant sure. had made, made All-American a couple of times so had Greg Turner Phil Aiken as well so he was just looking for the next young player in the pipeline and that happened to me to that that happened to me to be me so it just worked out well uh, and I think it all started from um, David and the golf team coming on a over to yeah. New Zealand on a tour Craig I ask every player that I have on this this podcast this question but I mean we all when I was a decent junior, we all wanted to be pro golfers. When was it, was it always a goal? Like working at the fruit market, was that like your hard goal? Or when did it become somewhat of a, like a, a definite destination of what you wanted to do? I mean, again, everybody wants to be a pro golfer. When was it some sort of reality that you could do it? Um. You know, I, it was probably around 1984 when I won the New Zealand Boys, which was sort of the, the biggest event for kids under the age of 18. Um, you know, there was a lot written about, I guess, my talent, uh, my temperament, uh, my dedication, I guess. And I, I you know, Ryan, I, it's interesting because Phil Blackner and I, when we've been on the, the what is now the Corn Free Tour, we ask a lot of these guys, you know, what do you think you you need to get to the next level? And then we also mm-hmm. ask guys on the PGA Tour, why you? What separated you from the, the 200 guys that were playing at college golf at that level? For, for me, I, I just had this vision that I wanted to come to America. Um, not, you know, I talked about the three Kiwis before me going off to Oklahoma. You know, not a lot of New Zealanders branched out they they never left home they, they right. actually never even left their city that they lived in so it was unusual that i was desirous to go to america uh, and it was it was a stark change in culture coming from new zealand to to america especially oklahoma um yeah i just i i, I just had i was i just wanted to be I wanted to be in an environment that that would motivate me, that would push me. And every day, and especially under the tutelage of Grant Waite, when he was a, I got there, my freshman year was the beginning of his junior year. And we went out and played and practiced every day and we worked hard and we tried to, you know, work on our golf swings and understand our golf swings and go out there and we made the team and compete. I think we just pushed each other. We motivated each other. For me, I just wanted to be, to see how good I could get. And and when I left New Zealand, I was the best player in the country. And when I got to the University of Oklahoma, I was a small fish. And that was yeah. that that was an eye opening experience. Uh, you know, I quali- tried to qualify for the very first event um in the fall for Oklahoma. I didn't make it and I'm calling mum and I'm like, I need to come home. I'm not good enough to, to even make an Oklahoma golf team. How am I gonna make it to the tour? So you know, I just, it goes back to those every single night going to the, into the garage with my dad and working on my forehand and backhand and table tennis. There was just a desire to get better. And, and there was a willingness to put the effort in. I never, 
I never thought about dreading preparing to get better. Um, so I, I don't know if there was a specific moment that I said, okay, I'm going to be a PGA Tour player. It was a, it was a culmination of events. You know, it, it made making the golf team for the first time. The, the first two events that I played for Oklahoma in the fall, I finished in the top five. And then, you know, making All-America. And then winning a golf tournament, although it happened to be uh, I transferred to a school, you know, Lafayette, Louisiana. Winning yeah. an event in college and then nearly winning the Western Open in, in the summer. Um, and one of the, the biggest amateur. I think it was just little landmarks along the way that that continued to give me confidence that yes, I was as long as I continue to work hard and do the right things and you know continue to work in that right direction, I, I may be able to to realize an ultimate goal, which was to get to the PGA Tour. And I know we're going to fast forward through a lot of stuff. Again, you talked about your transfer to Louisiana and those kind of things. I, I assume because you talk so highly of your of your relationship with Grant, when you turn pro, is that somebody you leaned on to kind of, you know, again, I, I ask every pro this. It, there's no way to understand what the pro game is like, you know, travel and all those things without some sort of mentor or just going out there and figuring it out yourself. So did you did you lean on Grant to kind of understand what that process was like? Ryan, he was so beneficial up until the point that I won the Players' Championship. Then it all changed. It was sort of like a big brother. You know, he took me under his wing, especially as, you know, he won a couple of Australasian junior titles, which was huge for New Zealand to go over there in their backyard in Australia and beat them. Yeah. Uh, and, and really won everything you could ever imagine, you know, won a New Zealand Open very early in his career and, and you know, to win a PGA Tour event. He was extremely helpful. Uh, yes, he was, but it, it did change uh, after I won the players. You know, if you go back to 2000, he was the one that was in that duel with, with Tiger Woods at Glen Abbey. Yeah. You happened to go down two more spots on the leaderboard. I finished fourth. Uh, yeah. And we, we met on the – I came up to congratulate him on coming off the 18th green uh, after Tiger hit that unbelievable shot out of the fairway bunker at Glen Abbey. And we actually sat in the airport sort of looking at each other. He'd just come off a second-place finish either – that was that week or the following back to back second place finishes. He was at the top of his game basically. Uh, yeah. And then here I was just a rookie. That's in 2000. Um, so yes, he was absolutely instrumental in me uh, being comfortable in the collegiate environment, working my way through the four years of the, what was then the Nike tour and now the corn tour and my rookie year and my second year on the PGA Tour, 2002 things changed. But uh, I, I would give, I would still give Grant a lot of credit for the, for the advice and the experience he imparted on me as I was sort of rising through the ranks to get ultimately to the PGA Tour. When you, when you turn pro, Greg, I mean, there's some, you know, again, I, I've read stories and it's not unusual, but for people who might not know, you, you sold shares of yourself. And I mean, you kind of have gone through what 
you know, I think, as you know from the account, a lot of people see you as a 2002 players champion. They don't see the the things, trials and tribulations that you go through prior to that. So when you turn pro, I mean, first of all, where did you play? Did you play like Hooters? Was the Hooters tour around back then prior to getting status on the Nike tour or whatever it was at that time? Where did where did you play? It started back in in um, 1990. I had a chance to be first team All-American. I had won the the Border Olympics out in Laredo. I had an investor come up to me when the oil was booming down in Lafayette, and he said, look, whatever you need when you turn pro, I'll give you what, how much money you need to go play. I'll give you a suburb and everything else. And at the end of, uh, well, end of my college career, in this, the end of the spring in 1990, I ended up being third team All-American. I went to him and, and he said, I'm sorry, I can't help you out. I was in tears. Uh, and I thought my golf career was over. So the only option I had, I had no money, obviously, was to go to work. So I went to work for a couple of years at the golf course down in Lafayette, Louisiana, a place called Le Triomphe, which they still host a, a corn yep. free tour event. I worked for a couple of years. I started as a, a cart boy, working the range, working the carts. Within a couple of months, I was in the golf shop. And then I, just, I would just go out and play with a membership. And you're right. Uh, at the beginning of 1993, I, I got 25 guys to come up with uh, $2,500 each. And we, we created a, a LLC and we just, these guys came up and put money in. And it, it was difficult dealing with that many people. I'd say 85% of them just wanted to give me a chance to see me succeed, to give me an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And about five of them wanted to take a piece of my hide for the rest of my life. So that was an eye-opening experience. My wife and I, uh, you know, we got married in 91. So while I was still working at the course and when I turned pro, we'd, we had a rent house. It was, we were sort of living very comfortably, if you could say on both of us making 15,000 a year, but we had no troubles. We had, we just didn't have any kids yet. And then when I turned pro, uh, the people that were sort of overseeing this, the account said, okay, you need to go move into a one-bedroom apartment. Your wife needs to get on the pill because she can't, we can't afford her to get pregnant and all these rules, right. stipulations and all this sort of garbage. And at that point, you do whatever you can because you have a dream of turning pro. So you go, yes, sir, yes, sir. You know, yeah, you do whatever right. you want. So um, in, I started in 93 playing what was then – the uh, TC Jordan tour. Yep. And my, my very first year, I actually won twice and I had a second. I believe I won the, the money list at that point. And it just sort of gave me a kickstart. I played, I think that turned in the Hooters tour in 94 and 95. And then ultimately I made it to, to Q school, uh, or made it to finals anyway, at the end of 95. And that got me on the, what was in the Nike tour now, the Corn Free tour in the beginning of 96. So I played the, that tour, Corn Free Tour from 96 through 99, and then finally got through finals in 99 to get onto the PGA Tour. So I think that for me, Ryan, the, the start, it, it was it was really comfortable. Uh, the TC Jordan, it was just a glorification of college. I played against all the same guys who were college seniors. My, my senior year in, in 1990, we you know, we'd have caravans of cars driving and parking at red roofs and playing at all of these inconspicuous locations around the country. We loved it. It was 
absolutely awesome. Um, and you cherish those days, you know, uh, because it wasn't a job. It was just sort of going out there and playing a game. And I think TC Jordan, the uh, 100,000 purse, 60,000, 100,000, whatever, 11,000 first place. And you just, you just hung out. You hung out at Longhorn Steakhouse or Outbacks or whatever, and you played 18, uh, four rounds, and you went on to the next event. And if you didn't make the cut, you'd, you'd hang out on Friday and drink your sorrows away. Um, <laughs> right, right. It, it got a little bit more corporate um, when the Hooters, the Hooters tour came along, thankfully, because it, you know, they had a great, well, yeah, you know, it, it was still Rick Jordan, I believe, part of that. Uh, he was behind it as well. And, it evolved, and then um, you know, you every every October you start worrying about okay, I gotta do I have enough money to go to first stage, and then then on to second stage, and then if then you you know I didn't make it through second stage in in ninety three ninety four, and you go, am I good enough to do this? And then finally in in ninety five I made it through. It was six rounds, although I missed the cut to play the final two rounds. It still gave me. You know, I was sort of scrapping for something, and it gave me an opportunity to play some some events on the Nike Tour. Um, and then you you sort of from that point there, you I just even though in in my mind I felt like I was improving every year. You know, I felt okay. I didn't in '95. I was still playing the Hooters Tour. I finally made it to the to the Nike Tour, the Corn Free Tour. I didn't play great. I had some flashes of brilliance. I lost in a playoff. And then you make it to finals again. And you, there's that huge exhale at the end of the year because you're, you're not only worried about the involvement of your golf game, you're worried about if your sponsors are going to stick with you because they've now been at it for three or four years. I tried to – I was doing well enough that we could roll the money over. You know, a couple of times I was – busted and couldn't be trusted and need more money, uh, needed people to put in some more money. But I, even though preparing for this podcast, Ryan, I, I went back and sort of did an in-depth study of my career. I always thought I was getting better. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. the results don't really show it. You know, I, I was always very inconsistent when I, I had flashes of brilliance, even in the, the Corn Free Tour, or Nike Tour or whatever. Um, but I just, I worked my rear end off. I worked as hard as, you know, we all know about Vijay Singh and all the, the effort and the, the amount of time he spent. Vijay Singh was, that was public knowledge because he was one of the greatest players in the history right. of the game. And we were all working that hard to try and wait right. yeah. and claw to get to that level. I wasn't, I remember back in those days, I was getting up at four o'clock in the morning. I was going to the gym. I would be at the gym at 4.30. I would leave the gym at 6.30. I'd be at the golf course at 7.30 and I'd come home at 6 o'clock at night. And I would do that every single day that I was at home. And then I'd go play, you know, I'd go play 20 events or 25 mini tour events a year. And even when I got to the, the Nike tour, I was doing the same thing just because I didn't want to leave any box unchecked or anything left to thinking, man, if I'd done that, I might have accomplished more. So that was sort of the early part of my career in a nutshell. So going back to this, the sponsors, Craig, isn't that, isn't that, you know, as I talked to, uh, I mean, I've caddied a few times, a bunch of times at many tour events. When you're, when you get sponsorship like that and you're at a club, 
you're the best player there. So your sponsors think like, why can't, you know, because they don't have a lot of understanding of how good everyone else is. They're like, why hasn't Craig, you know, just walked out on tour? Is that a hard part of that relationship is, hey, I didn't make it this year, but I have improved. I mean, you have to be honest with yourself and obviously with your sponsors. You know, you probably go out at at your course in Louisiana and shot 65 with these guys routinely, and they think like, oh, Craig's just going to go out on tour in a, in a minute, and I'm going to be rich, uh, or I'm going to get, you know, some part of this. Is that uh, when you have to go back or you miss at Q school, is it hard to go back to these guys and say, hey, I need more money or I didn't make it or whatever? I, to be completely honest with you, we, we would have meetings monthly, just sort of discussing, um, trying to educate these people. And like I said, 85% of them were solidly right. in my corner. Uh, I had a conduit between me and the rest of the guys who was, <laughs> yeah. like, a, who was like a father figure um, that any time I would come home, I would play golf with them every day. Um, and so he was keeping everyone informed. It, it is. And I, I've talked to a lot of young men who wanted, you know, who had the dream or um, the thought of going to play. And I said, the, the hardest thing is go ask people for money because you, you need, you know, and I've seen some of the stuff on your account recently. You do, you need back then. Now this is mid nineties. You know, you needed 50,000 a year to go out and compete. And that was to, for entry fees and Q school and all of the sundry yeah. items that go along with it. Um, I was, you know, I was called to the task about getting a shoe shine at a, at a tournament, you know, you had to pay. They had a had a on one of the the Nike tour events. They had some guys in the locker room that they you gave them twenty five bucks to clean your shoes for the week, and you, I put a receipt for that. And I was sort of second guessed on that. At that once, for me, I think the fortunate part, Ryan, was that as my career uh, continued to evolve and and you know, you extrapolate that over a certain amount of years. We had guys drop out. So instead of, you know, 25 guys putting in 2,500, it came down to a point where we had 10 guys that were willing mm-hmm. to put up five grand. And those 10 guys really, really were extremely supportive and dedicated to being there for me from a financial standpoint to try and succeed. Um, there, like I said, there were flashes, you know, second one year in a, in a playoff. And I made, this is 96. I basically covered what I spent. Let's say I spent 30 grand out of that 50 grand. I made 30 grand. So I still had 50 grand in the pot. Uh, in the, in the pot. And the next year was a bit of a struggle. And then nine, in 98, I, I had a three or four really good finishes and I'm, you know, I made close to 35 grand. So like I said, the money kept rolling over. But at, at one point in 99, I know I there was a stretch where I missed 12 or 16 cuts. And basically, early in August, I had to go back to Lafayette, Louisiana with my tail between my legs and my back up against the wall. My career was coming to a crossroads and I had to go to three or four guys and say, look, I need some money to, to play the last 10 events. Otherwise, my career is over. I, I basically run out of money. I spent it all. You know, we had 
two small kids. Megan was born in 96 and Nigel was born in 98. So they were both under the age of, of three. Um, I had played extremely poorly. And so I had three guys put up 15 grand and they said, go play. And I was just, at that point, I had that mentality. This is it. What? Show me something. If, you know, you've been doing this now since 93. This is now the middle of 99. This is it. Do you want to go back and work in a golf shop? Do you want to go sell shirts and so on and so forth? And there was a stretch ride. You know, I had played really well, 19th, 12th, 2nd, 5th, and, and got all the way to the, the Tour Championship. And really, that, that was sort of the – that catapulted me to – it may have even catapulted me to the Players' Championship because there was this assurance that I had a Tour – to play in 2000, I was fully exempt on the on the Nike Tour, Contrary Tour, in 2000. So then you you sort of you relieve a little bit of the stress going to Q School, and Q School is the most stressful event you'll ever play. So that's a long-winded answer, Ryan. But basically, I know that you're championing all of these guys. You know, you're actually helping connect sponsors with players, and I, I think it's admirable to do that because that there is there are a lot of players out there that are, are good enough have the desire and the dedication and the the willingness to go out and play they just don't have the money and i think for me i was i was very thankful just to have that opportunity and and when i did have success those four or five guys that stuck with me to the bitter end when i needed that money at the end of 99 I paid them back, you know, five, six-fold, whatever it may be, after I won the players. And, and all they wanted to say was that I helped that kid yeah. in his professional career. Whether None of them ever said, you know, I'm the reason that he won the players' champion. The people that uh, – players' championship the, – the people that would have said that, they'd opted out anyway because they, they were all worried about losing money instead of just giving me an opportunity. So uh, – it takes the right sort of temperament of player to deal with sponsors and investors. And, and it takes the right mentality from investors to, to know that this kid's not going out and frivolously just wasting away this money and going to the Bahamas and Bermuda and going all over the world to these exotic places and spending 10 grand a week and not even working at it. He's, he's willing to go chase the dream for for the smallest amount of money possible. Yeah, and I think, Craig, that it, it speaks to, I mean, you've, in the research to this, you talked a lot about the fact that, of course, you were nervous at the players, but nerve-wracking and nervous are kind of different because when you're playing, when you're in a position like you just talked about, that you literally are not going to be able to get to the next event without somebody's help, not only are you, like that's nerve wracking from the standpoint of like, it's either your career or not. Had you not won the players, your career would have continued at least at that point. But like, can it, that is what people don't understand is you were playing basic. I mean, of course it's for yourself, but there's 10 people who are involved or whatever the number was at that time in, uh, involved directly in your career. I mean, in the pressure of, just not playing for yourself any you know at that point you're you're playing for other people whether they were nice about it or not 
they're still involved in your career financially and emotionally, right? Well, I'll tell you what, Ryan, the pressure, the pressure is going to second stage of Q school and knowing if you mess, your career is over. That, that's pressure. And I, I followed Taylor Gooch on, on Sunday at the CJ Cup. A couple of weeks ago, I was on the ground out at Shadow Creek. And he had a great quote. They were saying, you know, what experiences are you going to draw from as you try and win on the PGA Tour for the first time? He goes, this is not pressure. We're paying for $10 million. If I screw up and I don't win this golf tournament, I may make three or 400000 by finishing in the top five. He said, what I draw from is those experiences on the mini tours and in the, the corn free tour and those where I had to finish top 15 in Portland just to get my keep keeping it stay in the top 75 or to win I believe he won in Knoxville or somewhere that those that's pressure these no one on the PGA Tour apart from those guys come to Wyndham I mean I know there's pressure and, I, and I'm not trying yeah. to but um it's just a know, different kind of pressure it's it, not- it is the the, the press the most pressure I felt was when I was uh, and I vividly remember this, going to second stage. You know, I'd missed second stage in 93, missed second stage in 94, gone to the second stage in 95 over at Kiva Dunes in, in Gulf Shores, Alabama. And I'm sitting there coming down the stretch. You, you're just, you're visually shaking. It's hard to breathe. And you're sitting there going, this is, my career is, it's tenuous at best. And you're, you're coming down the stretch and you go, if I can just par these last two holes or whatever it may be, then I've got a chance to get to finals for the first time and maybe I can do something with that. You know, and at that point, the difficult thing for me, if we go back to 99 when I was busted in the middle of the season and with that stretch of, you know, making four cuts and 16 events and having to go back to sort of plead for some more money. I, got, I had two kids under the age yeah. of three. I had a wife at home. Uh, I had this, and she she knew how desirous I was of, of playing professional golf. And it came to a point where it was going to have to be the generosity of others to help me continue this. And then if they were so willing to, to reach into their pocketbooks and, and and give me a chance to go play these last eight or 10 events, then it was now up to me. That, that's the ultimate pressure. And I think that those experience, you know, coming down the stretch of the players, it was, I, I've told people this a hundred times. I felt way more pressure trying to make a cut on the PGA Tour than I did coming down the stretch of the players. Yeah, there was a lot at stake of the players, obviously, but I didn't realize what, you know, the magnitude of it all. For me, it was, you know, coming down the stretch at Disney when trying to keep my card in the very last event of the year or the in 2000 when I'm trying to finish in the top 150 in the last three or four events of the year just to make sure I have some status going into the into 2001 and getting exempt all the way to finals so you have a better, you know, chance of improving your status. That's pressure. I mean, these guys playing for 10 million with 50 million in the bank, I mean, it's, it's a different type of pressure. I think that what these guys are facing trying to get out there for the first time is way more intense than trying to win your third U.S. Open. Yeah, I mean, I use the Cliff Kresge, tell, you know, I use this quote that he told me 
all the time. He's like, pressure is, you know, a 10 footer to make the cut when you don't have your best stuff or when your best stuff sometimes just isn't good enough. And, you know, pressure, you know, he was in contention at Bay Hill, like with Tigers, like it's, it's pressure, but it's good pressure. You have your best stuff and anything you do is cherry on top. So I, I think, I mean, that kind of epitomizes what I want to talk about in the account is you don't see those things. Everybody saw Craig Perks win the 2002 Players Championship, but they don't see, you know, that this career wouldn't be where it is if, you know, people or yourself went and got money and played those last eight events. And, and I mean, those last eight events to not be hyperbole changed your life. I mean, if you don't get money, you don't go play those events and you're probably a club pro in Louisiana or whatever you would have done to leave that. So, I mean, that's why I was so happy and so honored to have you on this because you are, you epitomize what this account is about and the grind that, that, that players go through to get to the peak that you reached. I remember doing an interview or sit down, uh, at the Western Open. So that would have been in July, uh, four months after I won the Players' Championship. And, and I do remember this, and uh, my son and even my daughter, uh, my wife sometimes sort of make fun of what I said. It, that win, it wasn't a, that was not a week's worth of work. It was a lifetime, you know, and everything built up to that point at the Players' Championship. And you're right. I mean, you know, I played three years on the mini tours and then four years on the the Nike tour, the Corn Free tour, and then finally get through Q score. And, uh, you know, I, I parred the last hole in 99 to finish right on the number where everyone sort of lost their, their stomachs coming down the stretch to sort of help me get my card for the first time. And, you know, those are the, if you think when I sit down and, and sort of reflect on my career, yes, the mountaintop experience is obviously the Players' Championship, but I, I really reflect upon all of those Q school for the, making it through Q school for the first time, sitting there coming down, you know, the stretch at second stage, so anxious and nervous about my, what my career, what, you know, what is my, what's going to happen to my career if I don't make it? You know, sitting there at late on a December in a cold evening, pleading to people over the phone to continue to support you, and and those those are the men, those are the ones that sort of build up to why the players were so gratifying because I was unheralded. Obviously, I was outside the top two hundred in the world, and probably the you know, the most amazing name to ever win that championship. But uh, for me, I love the underdog. And I think that's why I really like your account because it, you are always sort of promoting those, you know, those guys that, you know, it's just like you did recently when Bryson's sitting in his private plane and gets into his Bentley and you're like, mum drops you off the airport, your middle seat at the Southwest, you're standing in line at <laughs> At Avis, you're in a whole A Express, shoot 65, and you you miss the Monday qualifier, you you fly home. That that's so that's so it. You know, it's not fantasy land is what Bryson's doing, and it's amazing what he is doing. But uh, I, I just I really appreciate what you've done for 
all of us no-name people that are, are grinding our rear ends off to, to have some sort of fleeting success. Uh, thank you, Craig. Thank you very much. I mean, it's it's crazy to hear things like that. To be fair to you, leading up to the players, I mean, I obviously remember, I've, I've been a fan, I, I talk about this a lot, Is I've always been a fan of this. My dad and I used to go take a trip a year and go caddy on the mini tour. So I've always been a, that's why the account is what it is. I've always been a fan. So I remember your win very, you know, vividly just from the standpoint of like, it was, you know, the guy who who wasn't supposed to win. Quote. But I mean, looking back and getting ready for this podcast, man, you were playing pretty awesome coming in. I mean, it had to be the best stretch that was, I assume, the best stretch of your career leading up to the players, right? Well, I, it it was, but even if you go back to to the end of two thousand one, um, again, uh, as I mentioned, I had these flashes of brilliance. You know, I, I I missed all five cuts on the West Coast, and then I finished second at the Honda. Then I yep. there was a stretch where I missed nine cuts in a row, and then all of a sudden I I'm at Disney, and I'm one hundred and thirty first on the money list, and I shoot sixty four the last day plan with Bernard Langer. Uh, that allowed me to finish inside the top 125, 113th specifically. Also, what it gave me, it gave me a chance to exhale because that was the first time since 93 that I wasn't grinding through Q school in October and November and even into December. So I really legitimately had an off-season. And I remember that for about the first four weeks, now, I think the end of the season was early in November. I'm not sure I touched the club in, in the remainder of November. Four, four weeks. And it's just like you let all of that adrenaline, all of the pressure and all the anxiety just flow from your body. And I remember just going out there early in December down in South Louisiana and just I was going out having fun, playing with some friends, drinking some beer and just having a good old time. And all of a sudden I... Uh, a confidant of mine who was who was really important in the early part of my career. We decided to. Well, I asked him if he wanted to come with me out to Vegas, and um, just I spent about ten days out there preparing for the season. And it was it was sort of now business. It, I know you think Vegas is not business, but they had two TPC golf courses out there. So I went out there with every intention, and I did, I didn't quite know the weather was sporadic, and especially in December in in Louis, south louisiana so i went out there and just prepared for a season and it was it was sort of like a true off season mini camp training camp everything that i needed to do and as i began 20 uh, 2002 i started making all four cuts on the west coast and i'd never played well on the west coast basically mm -hmm. hoana greens and so on and so forth and then i flipped over to to florida uh and it, we used to make that run up the west well, up the coast of Florida, go to Doral, to Honda, to Bay Hill, and then the players. And I remember at Doral, I played with Tiger that the final day. Uh, and I felt like I handled myself extremely well, sort of in that cauldron of emotion, that, that atmosphere was was really quite remarkable. You know, he shot 66. He was trying to chase down Ernie. I was just sort of in awe of everything going on. But I was rather composed. Uh, I shot 71 playing alongside Tiger for the first time. and Again, we were just building on something. You know, now six, seven, eight, we'll head to the Players' Championship, eight cuts or seven cuts in a row. 
I'd made the cut at Bay Hill the previous week by beginning the tournament, hitting a ball out of bounds. And I just sort of, I, I didn't want that cu- that cut streak to come to end because I, I was really so inconsistent in making cuts. And I, I really think the culmination of the 64 on Sunday at Disney to end the 2001 season, the complete off season where I didn't have to go to Q school, the, the intense 10 days preparing for the season, to start the season with a good finish in Phoenix, and then to run all out to the players, it was just, it was building, it was bubbling, it was simmering. I didn't expect it. I wasn't, I was just honored to be in that field, uh, to be honest with you. Um, and just to, just to play, you know, I, I sat there at the, the Marriott, the Sawgrass Marriott and listened to live from the players with the, with Brandall and those guys. And they said, a rookie can't win around here. You need experience. And I sat there on a Monday night and go, why not? And that was sort of my mantra the whole week. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I, I talked. Know. I, I talked to Carl Paulson about it, and he said in the final round, you guys were both saying to each other, why not us? I mean, you had gotten to that point, and, you know, you would – again, you guys were both great players. There's no argument about that. But, you know, you were not household names by any means, and, you know, you were both saying, saying to each other, why not us? Sort of this, this saying that reverberated for me anyway, because it was, you know, you think of all the great players that have won there from, you know, and Tiger and Norman and Alkington and, you know, all the greats had won at Sawgrass and you needed the specific type of game. And here, you know, I think Carl was certainly more accomplished than I was up to that point. You know, he had one Q school. He'd been out there a little bit longer than I had. But here we were, two um, little known, unknown guys in the final group. And I just I came up to him on the on the on the first tee, and I said, "Why not one of us?" Um, you know, and I, I just think it was he he struggled a little bit. I I did as well. I was all over the place, but uh, you know, managed to create some magic here and there. But for me, it, it actually goes back to the first round. I know that there was, I was three over through 13 holes and we had a huge rain delay. It was a torrential downpour. And back in the old clubhouse, Ryan, they used to have the meager people who were the lesser knowns used to sit in the locker room and the, the champions had this little crow's nest. And it's like yeah. we, they were looking down upon us like we were the peasants. Peasants. Peasants, excuse me, and then you know they, 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 we were—they were these revered people that you looked up to, the, the the Almighty, you know. And I'm like, I sort of looked up there and said to myself something that I'm not going to mention, but I'm like, <laughs> you know, whatever to you. And I so yeah. I actually after the rain delay, I found something on the range with my ball position alignment. It was a little off. I birdied four out of the last six holes, um, or five holes, excuse me. And then that sort of then I. You know, I shot 68, 69 the, the next two rounds and got in the final group. And at that point, the golf course had changed so much on Sunday um, that it was just survival. You know, it had turned, it had gone from major championship brown to just frictionless golf course. It was, it was incredible. I'd never seen anything like it. And, uh, you know, like I said, it was a round that was 
very inconsistent. It sort of summarized my whole career. Seven bogeys, five birdies and an eagle. And, uh, you know, I happened to have that miraculous finish to, to be a guy that came and little old New Zealand came out and won the Players' Championship. It was pretty remarkable. I mean, it was. When you look, when you look back, I mean, like, Johnny Miller called it the three greatest holeouts he's ever been, you know, ever seen. Uh, I mean, I guess the culminate, I mean, every interview I saw of you is, is obviously talking about just leading up to that point. Now that it's, you know, 18 years removed, what's your fondest memory of that? I mean, is it, I mean, obviously winning, but your place in golf history is cemented forever. Obviously, I mean, does that does it still give you the chills? I mean, it must. Eighteen years later, it must like to to like see the uh, the clip that I shared. They called you Australian, unfortunately, but <laughs> um, like, I mean, what does it mean to you to this day, Greg? The fond memories I have. Uh, is that Johnny Miller may have called those the three greatest hole-outs that he'd seen, but he also called me idiotic when I pulled out driver. And he also said that I'd left my brain in the bayou, uh, which was quite cool, really. And then a couple of days later, Tim Rosenfort, who was at the time writing for Golf World, called the house to talk to me. And uh, I wasn't there at the time. And, and Maureen, who's a quick-witted Cajun, said, Tim asked Maureen where where I was, and she said very quickly, "Well, he's in the bay in the bayou trying to find his brain." So uh, <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. Another another thing is we uh, Maureen had flown in that morning with some friends of mine from Lafayette, and after I chipped in on eighteen to to win and to seal the two shot victory, and to I had to walk through the the grandstand and sign my card, and then come back through the grandstand, there was a podium by 18, right behind 18 green and Tiger Woods is sitting there and I'm like, what the hell is Tiger Woods doing there? And then I finally realized that he was gonna, you know, the defending champion was gonna present right. the crystal to them. And Maureen and I walked up onto that podium and Tiger, you know, Tiger said, congratulations, Craig, and then stepped to, the, to his right and came up to Maureen and said, hi, I'm Tiger Woods. And Maureen looked up and said, yeah, no shit. So that's, that's, that's sort of what I remember. Uh, more than anything, you know, it was a career-defining moment. Um, I wish it wasn't the last part of my career. Um, you know, I think looking back on it, you know, you remin reminisce a lot. Um, you know, and I accomplished a lot more than I ever thought I would. Uh, you know, I was 40 years old when my uh, career was a shambles in 2007 and, you know, my five-year exemption was, was up. Um, I had a lot of competitive bumps and bruises. I never regretted trying to get better. Um, maybe I regret the way that I went about it. Because, you know, I, I think the thing that was overwhelming to me, Ryan, is that when you win an event of that magnitude, there are a lot of expectations, you know, and the, the, the spotlight, the intensity of spotlight shines very brightly on you for a little while anyway, because you're a player's champion. 
you're you're put up alongside that role of champions um, that I never really felt like I deserved to be there, to be honest with you. Um, and then when you struggle, you lose a little faith, you lose a little belief, you know, you lose a little trust. You, I went down some wrong paths. Like I said, I, I never regret trying to get better, which is what I tried to do, tried to live up to be a players champion. I, I regret the the way I went about it. Um, you know, my my game had deserted me. I I really had trouble executing any shots and um you know, sometimes you you try and dismantle things and rebuild it. My it was a mess. So that that's the dis I mean, I'm I'm overwhelmed with gratitude because of what I did accomplish winning the players championship in the fashion that I did because that has given me a lot of notoriety for even to this day. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm just, I'm disappointed that I lost that much faith and that much trust and that much belief that quickly. Um, and I, I sort of went alone with this and trying to find the answers and find the cures and, and most of it was done physically where I really, all I needed was some, a good smack upside the head mentally, you know, and just mm-hmm. try and try and figure it out more from a the mental side of it, and you know the belief and the trust instead of trying to make perfect golf swings. So, um, yeah, it, it, I'm like I said, I'm, I'm eternally grateful for for having the opportunity. We we had the greatest life for. a for five or six years there, my you know my wife and kids we'd travel, we'd start the year in Hawaii, and then we'd spend the summers when they, we used to play in in uh, Chicago and New York, and the old Buick Open at Warwick Hills, and then we'd go out to the International, and then we'd spend the year at, at Disney. Uh, not a not a better place to be. Yep. The family came with me to the Open Championship and to the Masters for a couple of years. I, I'm I'm grateful for all of that. I'm just you know, in some quiet moments, I'm disappointed that that I that the game betrayed me, and I I sort of betrayed my own belief. Let's talk about after the players. So you win the players. Does it come Does it come from internal pressure, Craig, or does it external? Meaning you have people that might not have been interested in your career up until that point. Is it most of a internal that you have to live up quote unquote to being the player's champion now very very soon after it was external uh, there was a lot of demands on my time which i wasn't prepared for um news day from new york we did a a cut out with the magazine the whole family they came and did photo shoots and so on and so forth i was you know on doing shows at at all hours, you know, even from New Zealand and Australia and so on and so forth. Um, but the the window closes very quickly. I think after, by the middle of the summer, you know, and I won in March back in 02, uh, all of that attention had died down. Um, and so now at this point, you're sort of thinking, all right, so now, um, you know, I missed seven of the, the next nine cuts after Players' Championship because more so just because 
the the drain you know I, I this is the best example i can give you on how i wasn't prepared for what was going to happen i remember houston now that was the very next week uh after i won the players championship i honored my commitment i wanted to play there um, i didn't drive over i ended up driving over there on wednesday thinking that i'd probably be in the pro-am i called they said uh, yeah, you probably will just put you in the afternoon pro-am, so on and so forth, so I get a chance to get to the golf course. So I ended up driving over there, getting to the course about 9 o'clock. I didn't get to the range till 1 o'clock. I did a press conference. I met with some individual riders. I went and talked to the, uh, the, golf, the Houston Golf Association, just a bunch of volunteers and did all this stuff, and then got to the range and inundated with well wishes. And, and by the time... I get to go out there and play. I'm just absolutely exhausted. Now, Thursday night, I mean, Wednesday uh, or Thursday morning, I did some, I think, an interview on ESPN radio. Thursday night, I did a sat, sit down with someone else. Friday, I missed the cut. Saturday morning, I did something, you know, and then Sunday, I drive back home and then with Augustus the next week. Um, a lot of that quickly dried up after you know, my golf game deserted me, but the pressure certainly came from within because a lot of times you sit there and go, okay, I've missed three cuts in a row. I'm not playing like a player's championship. And then you can, people, you know, every, every week someone say, you know, player's champion, you haven't, haven't played too well. You know, you're feeling the effects. Are you drained? What's wrong? You know, why hasn't this, why haven't you been able to catalyze, capitalize on the success and so on and so forth? So it was exhausting. Um, I think it took more out of me physically, which then sort of affected uh, me mentally, uh, became just sluggish. Um, you know, you, you sort of get maybe a little bit more demonstrative, a little, you know, you're agitated because your, your nerves are frayed a little bit more. Your, your body can't function like you want it to. And then you, you get down on yourself and you start berating yourself. So it was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy there from a mental side because of the exhaustion, then the expectations, then the, the frustration. So I think that's, that's the road it went down. Um, and then, you know, in 2003, I actually, I started the year reasonably well. Um, and they actually had a chance to win the players defend my my title at the players championship i was two two back going into sunday that was the year that davis shot 64 i shot 76 on sunday but um i was in the third to last group and then at that point ryan i think it was it, going into sunday standing on the range at sunday it hit me on the 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 magnitude or the size of the players championship that i had a chance no one had and i don't think they still have to this point. Anyone has successfully defended their title. I had a chance to do it. Um, right. And I had a lot of media requests on, on Saturday night and I accepted them all, whether that was a mistake or not. But, um, and, you know, you, it was probably going to be difficult to beat Davis anyway, shooting 64 in those conditions. But that long-winded answer to your question, but I think more than anything, Initially, expectations from the media and the public and all of those people that sort of have a voice in golf, and then it 
sort of exponentially became more of a burden, you know, personally because I couldn't live up to being what I expected as a player's champion. What the decision to stop playing, Craig, was it, I mean, obviously you were struggling at that point pretty badly, but was it an easy one from the standpoint of like you were, you know, the things that you talked about, like exhausted of, of the grind or was it still difficult even though you were struggling? Decision I made, to be honest with you. I actually did, uh, my, I give my wife all the credit in the world because in 2000, at the end of 2006, I'd made one of, one of 20 cuts and I made like 11 grand. So I had one more year left on my five-year exemption and I was done. I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I, the point of continually putting in the effort and getting no results out of it was extremely frustrating. Um, she came, she had a frank discussion with me one late December evening. She said, I would hate for you to try and um, be offering some advice or some life experiences to your children about giving it your best effort and never quitting and going out there and, you know, just being responsible for your own behavior when they look back and say, dad, you, you didn't play last year on tour. Why'd you quit? You know, so I did hesitantly play in 07. I, I had, I shouldn't have, I had the worst uh, mental outlook. I, I left every day telling my wife, I'll see you Friday. I played 15 events, which was a minimum. And I didn't make the cut. I think my scoring average was close to 76 that year. Um, it, it was that I was disappointed myself that year because I could have gone out and had so much fun. I could have known that this might have been my last year. Uh, I wasn't um, hesitant to go out there and my career, you know, knowing my career was going to be potentially over. I wasn't fighting it. I wasn't reluctant to say I'm such a failure that I'm just done. I should have just gone out and enjoyed it. And but I had so much anxiety and apprehension that I couldn't. I couldn't even get off the tee. My my golf game was a mess. Mentally, I was I was a shambles. So it was the easiest decision because I still love the game and I still wanted to leave it with that love affair instead of hatred. Because if I continue to go chase it, go go down to the, or go play some corn-free tour events or try and go through Q school and continue. I, I was just in no place mentally to, to continue to compete against the best players in the world. So it was a very simple decision. Um, and I just, I stepped away. I tried to do it quietly. I uh, tried to do it with full respect of the game and my fellow competitors. Uh, my last event was Disney. I actually Nelly made the cut there and I just, I sort of tiptoed off the golf course and, and kissed it goodbye and, and said thanks for the memories. It was, it was really a pretty easy decision. When you, when it, like 2000, you know, 2007, when does it change from you, you're, you're not mad, but disappointed with the way it ended? And when does it change to appreciation of what you accomplished, Craig? I mean, it, there has to be some sort of process that, you know, the last X amount of years didn't go how you would wish, but very few people can, you know, be up in the crow's nest that you talk about 
you know, you're amongst some of the best names in all of golf. What's that process? I mean, what's the length of that process? Or is that process ever done? Do you look back and still have the same mixed feelings that you did when you walked off in 2007? There's no surrender in a golfer's soul, right? And I think that deep down, you know, I was disappointed the way I was playing. I, I really was. It was an embarrassment. Yeah. Just the, the shots I was hitting, I had trouble getting to the first tee on a Thursday. But deep down in, in a soul of a competitor, and I go back to playing table tennis with my dad as a, a nine or ten year old, you you still you still just wanted to go out and and play to a certain level. You had so much, you had pride, you know, because pride and desire had gotten you to a certain point, and you you just loved to compete. And I never left. I just I was a mess. I was an absolute mess mentally. So um, the the last event, my kid, you know, Megan and Nigel were there. Maureen was there at, at Disney. It was it was in a comfortable environment. You know, we'd go to the parks. We got there early in the week and go to the parks all afternoon. And it was just, you know, secondary that I had to go out and play golf on Thursday and Friday. It this uh, it was easy to to walk off that final green at at the Palm Golf Course and just say goodbye because I didn't want to deal with the frustration anymore. You know, it it had gotten to nights where you know my daughter at some time I remember playing at Augusta. She I was so disappointed in my finish. I think I double bogeyed the last hole in 2004, and I was so despondent and so disappointed in my effort. It brought my kids to tears, and I I didn't want to have that sort of effect on them. I wanted to be a good father and a good dad, and and be present and be an uplifting sort of char- character for those guys. And uh, I couldn't be with the way that I played in in 05, 06, and 07. Um, and so I didn't want my um, inability to perform at the level that I needed to to be successful on the PGA to affect what type of father I was, husband for sure, with, with my wife, because she'd been so, she'd given so much and sacrificed so much. So um, it was like just a lot of gratitude leaving. And I did, for, for whatever reason, like I said, I couldn't break 80 in 2007. Then at Disney, I shoot 71, 72, you know, and have it sort of nearly have a chance to make the cut. Um, there was a higher power there just pulling me across the finish line and saying, congratulations, you're done. Now, now go, go find some peace and happiness, you know? So it was, uh, like I said, Ryan, it, it was so easy to walk away because I didn't, I just didn't want to, I was an embarrassed. <laughs> it's like someone's the a writer from the, the Charlotte observer. When I played at Wachovia that year, I shot 80, 76 play with Tiger Woods and they came up to me, the writer from the Charlotte Observer and said, do you feel like a fraud because you have your name on the bag, you're a PGA Tour player and you're playing with Tiger Woods and you just shot 80, 76. I didn't want to be a fraud. I didn't want to be an embarrassment to the, to the, uh, to the profession of a PGA Tour player. And it was, that was easy enough for me to say, I'm done. Uh, I, like I said, I accomplished more than I ever thought I would winning a players championship. My career didn't 
evolve after I did win. But if you'd said to me, Craig, you're going to win one of the biggest events on the biggest stages and the strongest fields and play eight years on the PGA Tour, hell, I probably would have taken it. I mean, it's despite the struggles at the end, I mean, it's it's a career that, you know, it, again, like you said, you won one of the biggest tournaments against one of the best fields in the world. And, and no one, no matter what happened after those years, Craig, I mean, I, I say it a lot, but this is really truly one of the coolest things. I'm so lucky to have this account grow and to have things like this. This has been one of the coolest outside of family things, obviously one of the coolest hour and 15 minutes I've ever spent. And uh, I'm really honored to talk to you and, appreciate the sincerity and all the support it's it's really uh, i i mean this from the bottom of my heart it really is very very cool to be able to experience things like this and talk to you and uh i can't thank you enough well i i appreciate you having me on um and and really i i am it's been it's been fun to like i said i was a little known lesson on unknown player from New Zealand winning the Players' Championship. And I just love how you promote and support, you know, the stories and the interviews from all these kids, you know, just grinding their rear end off trying to get to the tour. And like you said, young guys, that status, no status, you know, it, it's phenomenal. Just I look forward to, to reading your post. And, uh, you know, I'm, you should be given more exposure. I really, I, I enjoy doing what we what we did that one week at, at Sanderson Farms when we sort of talked about Jay McClue and how you'd brought that story to the public. And uh, I'm just thankful that uh, you have a voice. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's, it, it's great for me. It's wonderful to, to reminisce and to go back in the archives. And, you know, I did some research and sort of look back at my career and the high points and the low points and the bumps and the bruises. And I'm glad I had a chance to share it with you. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate it so much. I can't thank you enough, and uh, thanks for your time. All right, you got it, Ryan. Thank you. Go to goodwalkcoffee.com. Use the promo code FIREPIT for 20% off. Uh, great coffee. Get the Monday Q grind. Goodwalkcoffee.com. Promo code FIREPIT.